Metal episode 54. This is the sixth in my series looking back at each year of the decade, so we're up to 2015 at this stage. And much like a few years before it, this is just yet another one where it is ludicrously strong. Narrowing a list down to my top 15 albums of this particular year was incredibly difficult. There's some real classics I've missed off. And once again, it's a really good spread of genres. We've got great stuff from across the, the realms of like black metal, doom, some more traditional death metal. Had some really strong stuff in there. Yeah, just an all-round very, very good year. So um, before we get into the main list, I want to go through some of the sort of honourable mentions. There's some really interesting stuff. Um, Obsequay put out Area of Vernal Tombs, which is a band I often heard compared to sounding like early Opeth, but to my mind is kind of black metal done with a very kind of medieval theatrical influence to it. A lot of like ambient uh, acoustic passages and so on that feel like the backing music to a kind of World of Warcraft style computer game or something like that. In a similar vein, Panopticon put out um, Awesome Eternal, which is another really strong Panopticon album. It seems to be since uh, Kentucky they've just been on a run of getting better and better. This album I really enjoyed, but there's just a few other Black Metal albums this year I felt slightly edged it out. Also this year, we had Cadaver Cult put out their 2015 demo. Essentially, Cadaver Cult were a kind of band that their entire way of recording was in demo format. It was a collaboration between Lord K of Tortoise Division and Project Hate and Eric Vrunquest of Vomitry, just doing some really to-the-point brutal death metal. If you're into that kind of more straightforward, very guttural, very riff-driven death metal. This is well worth checking out, and as I say, you can just download it all for free. In a similar vein, Fastum put out their, I think, third album, Hole Below. It's just yet another really strong Fastum album, but for my money, it's not quite as good as the one before, or the one that came out a few months back. Similarly, Enslaved put out In Times, which I know is a very popular Enslaved album, but for whatever reason, I think it might be my least favourite of at least like the last eight or nine they've done. Something about it just meant I didn't love it quite as much. I'm really into Enslave on like pretty much everything they've done I really like. And in times I still listen to a lot and enjoy it's just not quite like quite as good as some of their other stuff. I don't I don't know why though. We also had Mirka put out her debut M which, very divisive in the black metal scene, like some people saw it as too much of a departure. I think in many ways it sort of got marketed really badly, so she drew a lot of hate from uh, people for being quite hipster, similar to a lot of the hate like Death Heaven got as well. But personally, I really enjoyed it. Again, another really solid black metal album that I just think has been edged out by a few I found around this time a bit more interesting. An album I'm really fond of, but I've not included in the list because it's basically a rock album. Code put out their fourth album, Mutt. And Code were initially, and kind of still are these days, an incredibly progressive, but quite to the point, black metal band. With Mutt, they just transitioned into being this really mellow, but kind of twisted prog rock. So entirely clean vocals. Very little reliance on distorted guitars, but still like a deeply unsettling listen. Absolutely incredible, but as I say, not quite uh, a metal album. In terms of another band changing from a more extreme sound, Tribulation put out Children of the Night, uh, kind of continuing their evolution away from their death metal starting place into this bizarre kind of gothic um, rock meets death metal. 
it, it's a really cool album. I know it's very, like, very popular. A lot of people are really into it. And kind of makes me feel like a Philistine because I think I still love The Horror, their first album, where they were just a total Swedish death metal worship band more than anything they've done since, despite the fact they've gone off in this really interesting, progressive way. Leprous put out The Congregation, which saw them kind of smoothing some of the harsher edges of Cole down, essentially. It's, it's a good album, but I don't think it quite lives up to the, the previous two they did. We also sadly had the swan song of Symphony X with their final album, Underworld, which after their kind of slightly overblown double album before, was more of a return to doing... It's still prog as fuck, but just something that was a bit easier to follow and a bit less self-indulgent. A really enjoyable one for them, but I don't think quite up to the standards of uh, Paradise Lost or uh, The Odyssey. And Niall put out what should, what should Not Be Unearthed, which will be their final album with Dallas. And again, it's one I've left out of here, despite its really high quality. Essentially, at this stage, it does feel very much like Nile going through the motions. Like, it doesn't have the evolution that you were kind of seeing in all the ones before it. It's a great album, but for whatever reason, it's one I don't come back to that often. I want to quickly mention two EPs that came out um, in this time period, uh, which I thought were really great. We had the final release of The Earls of Mars, a short-lived band who essentially did one brilliant album and one brilliant EP, and then Harry Armstrong, the singer, kind of went his own direction. Like, if you've never heard them, they are fantastically unique. Uh, they're a kind of a mixture of someone between, like, stoner and psychedelic rock, but all through this very twisted sensibility. There's there's something so strange and creepy about the delivery of everything, with these fantastically weird lyrics. Um, this EP goes, like, takes that even further. All the songs seem to have the general theme of murder in them, but all from, like, what feels like quite a twisted Victorian sensibility. And just everything is up from the album. The... All the musicianship has improved. Like the guitar playing is far more complex than it was before. A lot of like the way they've layered vocals up is really interesting. It's just an absolutely brilliant release, and sadly, that like, probably the last thing we'll ever hear from them. In a far more uh, kind of popular vein, the kind of one of the gent progenitors, Sixth, reformed and put out uh, the EP Opaque Disease, which was essentially very much where they'd left off with Bland Street Bloom, I felt. Like there was a lot of really similar elements going on there. And, and personally, I thought it was an incredibly strong release. Although they weren't reinventing the wheel, what their sound was so unique and no one ever really did what they did again. Them just coming back and doing, like, doing something in that vein was really impressive. Sadly, I never got into their, their follow-up album that came out like uh, a year or two later. And I've kind of, yeah, kind of dropped off on that band a bit. But this EP, if you enjoy their early work, I'd highly recommend checking out. Okay, let's get into the list proper then. At number 15, we have a very interesting one. This album, according to Metal Archives, is listed as goth slash doom, which I, I feel is fairly... 
about as accurate as you're going to get. This is Karen Crisis's Gospel of Witches and that, their debut album of this project, Salem's Wounds. So this band sort of picked up where FL Duaf left off. So Karen Crisis is the partner of Davy Tiso, the main man behind FL Duaf, and he forms like the core of this band, playing all the guitar, bass, and keyboards parts. Karen just does the uh, vocals and lyric writing, although. With a project like this, the lyric writing is very key to it. Then the lineup is rounded out by a couple of guest musicians of Charlie Smith on drums and Mike Hill and Ross Dolan on backing vocals. Ross Dolan is Immolation's incredibly low voice growler. Uh, Mike Hill is the vocalist of Tombs and Charlie's the drummer of Tombs. And what we've got here is this very slow burning doom like really slow building hefty songs incredibly atmospheric stuff i think the the reason it's got that kind of goth classification possibly is because karen's vocals are so utterly bizarre so i've covered this a few episodes back uh talking about the final Ethel Duath album, but she does this sort of very interesting like half sung half growled sort of almost purposely ever so slightly out of tune singing over everything with then like all the various backing vocalists adding these kind of low chanting elements underneath like a lot of the the kind of bigger chorus kind of moments of it it all has a very ritualistic kind of vibe to it it i think karen's very deeply into her um occult uh, witchcraft kind of stuff so this is all sitting very much in that kind of vein it's a long album, it's like well over an hour, and I think it's got about 14 tracks. But it goes through a lot of interesting movements in there, and none of the songs really overstay their welcome because of that. There's a lot of kind of interluding and building parts, and then some more heavy in-your-face bits. Although don't be fooled by like the members of Tombs, uh, Felduath and all that, this still sticks very much in a more accessible end of... Uh, Doom rather than delving into like black metal or death metal or that really hideous end of, of doom metal. This is certainly more accessible on many levels, although Karen's vocals will be something I think you either get or don't. Personally, I was sold on them straight away, but I know a lot of people just can't get their head around that. Also, it's got a really nice, like, crisp production to it. Like, Everything sounds really clear, and the guitars and that still have a nice punch to them. Very different kind of guitaring style, actually, to a, like a lot of what Davy was previously doing with um, FL Duaf. Although it starts to have like, and he's got a similar-ish tone to what he's then using uh, later on with Howling Sycamore. So it's kind of seemingly the, the direction he's gone guitaring-wise. Yeah, it's just one I recommend giving it a go because you won't have heard something in this vein before for me something that really makes it is like the songs with ross Dolan's backing vocals just hearing him in a context so different to immolation reminds you just what an incredible voice he has such this like real low guttural approach but still very clear and audible and that mix with a kind of higher slightly screen vocals just sounds really excellent yeah so give this one a go it's one of those albums i think you'll be able to tell within like the opening two minutes whether it might be for you or not personally i, I really enjoy it Of my heart, of my heart 
flew under the radar quite a bit. This is the fourth album by Armageddon, uh, Captivity and Devourment, released on Listenable Records. So you may remember in previous episodes we covered Armageddon's debut. This is uh, Chris Amott, most famously of Arch Enemies, uh, sort of side project that always sort of ran along parallel to a lot of uh, early Arch Enemy. So they did three albums back in the day, like one crossing the Rubicon, the debut, which is a, a really great, like quite progressive melodic death metal album then the follow-up they got in a clean vocalist rather than a screamer and did a kind of more power metally like prog power album and then the follow-up to that went into just like traditional hard rock slash heavy metal territory it's got some good moments that one and chris amott does the clean vocals for it actually uh, but some of the lyric writing is so bad it, it becomes borderline unlistenable in places. But still, like, I, I still really like all three of the early Armageddon albums. And then they split up for the longest time. And then eventually, back in, like, probably mid-2014, sometime like that, they, like, Chris Amort, I think he'd moved to America at this point in time, got together a completely new lineup for this band, and recorded Captivity and Devourment, which is really like kind of a return to their roots, but actually is an album far heavier than anything they'd put out before. So this is still, I'd say, very much a melodic death metal album, but it's got a nice extreme edge to it, and it keeps a lot of those kind of progressive ideas in there that sort of fueled some of the later movements of their career. The album starts out in quite brutal fashion with Captivity and Devourment that comes in on like one of the more aggressive riffs of the album over like proper kind of blast beating stuff. But then the entire sound of the album does still have that sort of arch enemy feel to it. It is a lot of very clear recordings, everything's very well produced, and there is plenty of room for the massive guitar solos that will be coming at some point in any given track. But there's still enough heaviness and brutality to this that it um it keeps things interesting. It doesn't it doesn't feel that self-indulgent to me a lot of the time. Uh Matt Halquist, the vocalist, does a really good job of lending a fairly brutal edge to it. Chris um is still doing some clean vocals on this though so when we get to like a uh, track three rendition there's a whole clean vocal chorus and we start maybe moving away from the heaviness uh hinted at in the first track the solos are on point they're just chris is really really good at writing melodic guitar solos and this album has some of my favorites of his realistically i think the big comparison anyone will want with this album is is this worth picking up over newer Arch Enemy? And I've got to say, I haven't enjoyed an Arch Enemy album as much as I enjoyed this one since probably Doomsday Machine. But this album does take a lot of risks uh, a band like Arch Enemy had never taken. And one of the later tracks, Rendition, there's, uh, sorry, not Rendition, The Watcher, there's a whole part where all the instrumentation drops out for Chris Amott sort of recording this multiple voice harmony 
uh, that yeah leads us into the next riff. There's lots of kind of cool changes in songs, stuff like the equalizer towards the end of the album, the one probably the one with the most memorable chorus of the lot, does this fun thing of throwing in a totally different idea in every verse. So you get like a really shreddy part and then a more melodic build-up part, but then coming back to the same chorus. It's so it's still got that kind of verse chorus big guitar solo structure, but they throw a couple of little curveballs in there. So like Giants the closer has basically your four four minute long song at the start and then a four minute long massive like prog rock uh outro where it goes into all sorts of bizarre melodic territories there's um there's your kind of essential for the for chris amott uh, acoustic guitar interlude track in the form of background radiation which is all right. It's no marching on a dead end road, but it's it's still pretty cool. And the uh, the single from this album, Fugitive Dust, is a really great just uh, the big melodic hook of the album. I think it's it's got some really clever little movements in it, and a lot of use of Chris's melodic playing without really getting too showy or self indulgent. Like some of the some parts of the album have proper shreddy moments, but that single actually is very toned down and just uses his ability to like bend a note in such a way that it just sounds incredible as the kind of part of the melodic hook of the chorus. Essentially, you're not going to like this if you don't have some time for Arch Enemy or that kind of very solo-driven melodic death metal. After this album came out, the band did tour quite a lot. I think they, they sort of played Japan. like they, they did play around the world quite a bit, but... For whatever reason, the thing sort of fizzled out, and it, the eventual outcome with Armageddon is Chris sort of got fired from his own band, and the rest of the lineup at that point in time formed Daughters of Chaos, who have put out, I think, like a two track demo so far, which is kind of cool in the same vein, but without Chris Amott. So, yeah, I think sadly, after this, uh, Armageddon fizzled out. And one other thing to notice, it's got a really cool uh, Paolo Garaldi cover which, uh, again, implies that it might be way heavier than it's actually going to be. But, as I say, for a melodic death metal album, it's got some punch in places.
13, we have an album that possibly verges in into being almost too avant-garde for me even. This is Dodsheim's Guard, fifth album, an Umbra Omega. So Dodsheim's Guard have been around for absolute ages, since like the early 90s. They're one of those bands where they've had a lot of lineup changes over the years, but they're kind of... they. Norwegian, like Norwegian progressive black metal band, I think is fair to say, who've had members of all sorts of projects in. So, uh, until sort of not long before this album, Quost of Code, Hex Vessel, um, Beast Milk, many other projects like that, uh, was their vocalist, uh, Zal of uh, Vedbu and Ends and Oranar and Virus was in them. Fenris was briefly in the band. Like, looking up their history is, yeah, well worth it. Also, they're often also referred to as DHG, which is much easier to spell than their actual name. But yeah, they, they do a... They've always done a very experimental form of black metal, and each of their five albums is totally different from the last. And with this one, the band leader, Victonic, who has basically been keeping the thing going for years, like... The, the four-piece lineup he's got together on this album are basically totally new to the band at this point, and I think there's already been a shift in lineup since this was released. But he's there as the guitarist and main songwriter for the project, with a few other people filling out like bass, drums, and vocals. The thing that will stick out about this album to most people straight away is the vocal approach is completely and utterly ridiculous like it is so strange every and everything is like actively trying to be strange the vocalist's like intonation but just keeps lilting all over the place he does things where like he will purposely go for a high note and break halfway there to make an interesting sound all the lyrics as well seem constructed to just be almost nonsensical poetry that just makes an interesting vibe like there's a lot of cool kind of concepts being flung around but I, I don't feel any song has a particular meaning or if it is it's at such a high poetic level I could not tell you what it is uh, the the kind of sound of the band is somewhat rooted in black metal but it it does a lot of smooth moves between kind of acoustic uh guitar meets piano moments but then you'll have some more blasting moments some stuff that is very just open and atmospheric lots of clean tone guitars lots of acoustic guitars but then some slightly heavier stuff although the heavier stuff never punches that hard because the guitars just aren't that distorted and the drums are playing in this way like sort of produced in this way where they're not that front and center so when the double kits get going it doesn't it doesn't sound like a kind of like Dimmy Borger record or something like that. It's all it's all very subtly done, but it's got a really nice tone to it. Actually, compared to the previous two uh, Dossheim's Guard albums, I think this one just has a way nicer sound to it. Those two, I'd always... Something about them put me off. The structure of the album is one intro track and then five just really long pieces each around 10 minutes that go through so many movements and changes that kind of band where it's impossible to describe what a song actually did in terms of structure once you finish listening to it but it's certainly a really interesting listen and I think for some people they will absolutely love it 
I'm sort of torn. Moments of it I think are utter genius and other bits I do get a bit lost in. And every so often the vocals will just make me laugh out loud. Which I don't know if that's entire, like not entirely the, pro the approach. I don't know quite how seriously this project takes itself. But it is hyper-progressive and very, very interesting. And creative in a way that I find really like refreshing especially of such veterans of the scene for to have like uh victor nick played bass on vedbu and zen's written waters so this is a man who has been inventing and doing new stuff with black metal since the early days and yet is still finding ways to kind of carve new ground and keep stuff interesting and fresh possibly even more so than uh, gospel of witches this will be one where i think your appreciation of it will live or die on the vocals give it a go it's certainly interesting with their second album, Four Phantoms, released on Profound Law Records. So, if you've not come across Bellwitch before, they're incredibly interesting because they managed to make a full Funeral Doom sound with two members. So it's just drummer and bass player. The drummer does additional scream vocals and the bass player does these uh, very subtle, uh, clean vocals. They got a lot of attention with their... 2018 album Mirror Reaper, which was essentially one giant 80-minute movement of a song with one of the best album covers ever. But this album, personally, I actually prefer. It's also got a really beautiful cover, not quite in the same league, but it's the second uh, Paolo Gradi cover in this list. And because rather than doing the one huge track, uh, these, this is split into four songs, averaging somewhere between like 10 and 20 minutes each. And whereas that, that album was very much all the screaming heavy stuff was in the first half and the clean stuff was later on, in this album, 
we get more of a movement between the two. What's particularly interesting about uh, Belwich is Dylan Desmond's bass player. He bass playing like he is doing so many complex things. Like he, he plays a six string bass and will somehow layer kind of leads on the very high string over like jet, like more hefty stuff on the lower strings. But you affecting everything in such a way, it sounds like there's like beautiful lead guitar passages coming in. I, I wonder if he's pitch shifting or something. And creating like those kind of feel of multiple guitar tones all on one bass. I saw him live um sometime, I think early twenty seventeen, and Dylan's like pedal board was like a full coffin size. It must have been almost two meters long. I have never seen quite so much equipment in terms of pedals for a bass player in a band, but he he certainly makes uh, use of it. Adrian Guerrero's drumming on it's really brilliant as well. It's obviously a lot of that kind of funeral doom stuff. So this is a man who had a grasp of playing really slow but keeping things perfectly tight. But he's got an apocalyptic enough scream as well to really add some punch in the heavier, doomy moments. Tragically, he died not long after this album, which, yeah, which must have been an incredible loss for the band, but somehow Dylan's kept going and found a suitable replacement and kept the band alive as a two-piece. But, yeah, this is sadly the last album he, he ever performed on. As interesting as Bellwitch are, I don't think they're a band that will sell people who don't get Funeral Doom on Funeral Doom they're, I would say, sort of at the more extreme end of the genre because they they spend so much more time in the Doom camp than, than say, like a band like Esoteric who move into faster, like, blast beat kind of death metal moments in places. Bellwitch are nearly always slow. They're kind of slow and heavy or slow and mellow, but always in that kind of vein and yeah I, I saw a lot of people checking out mirror reaper who had never never come across funeral doom before and i don't think this is the start point for a band like for a genre like that but it's a really good example of it once you're in there and there's enough interest there especially if you're like a bass player just in the complexity of what is going on in the bass and how one man is able to do all that. And he he does reproduce this live with seemingly no drop in intensity. Like, I think this is as close to kind of the live recording as can be. I don't think there's a great deal of overdubs going on on here.
11, we have the second album by the UK-based band Sarpanatum. So these guys were formed in around 2003 by Tom Hyde, a guitarist and bass player, and Tom Innocenti, a vocalist and keyboard player. And then the lineup's rounded up by Leo Macy on drums. Leo Macy is the incredible multi-instrumentalist behind Mifras. So absolutely brilliant guitarist, an incredible, like, super fast death metal drummer. This album has a lot of the kind of feel of Mifras. Actually, before I looked up the lineup, I thought Leo Macy was playing the guitars on it because the guitars have that kind of really massive sounding kind of sci-fi tone that um, that Mifras has. And possibly due to that, Leo Macy also recorded, mixed and produced this. So it's, yeah, it's definitely got a lot of his kind of staple on it. But what we get here is a very different beast to Mifras. Actually, what it puts me in mind of, and this is a kind of bizarre combo, is a death metal band writing songs in that kind of slightly folky-inspired black metal vein. Like, there's a lot of black metal in this, although none in none of the obvious ways. Like, the tone and everything of it is so pummeling in a way that only death metal can be but there is some interesting melodies and stuff thrown up that are more black metally the the songs aren't anywhere near as complex as a uh, mifras songs either like we have like the 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 intro kumenos uh is this very gentle build-up and then uh the first like track proper but by, by virtuous reclamation is far more to the point blasting stuff like the structures aren't quite as complex but they're still really interesting we get a few kind of keyboard type tracks to to break up the flow of the album but mainly this is a real pummeling death metal blasting but just in a way that doesn't feel like any other death metal album as i say it sounds to my ears like a mifras album but everything is like everything structurally about the songs is not there the lyrics seem to be very much rooted in medieval UK stuff. Like, the cover looks like the kind of Bayer Tapestry-style artwork. And I think a lot of the lyrics are along those kind of veins. Uh, tracks like, glorified upon the powdered bones of the sundered dead. Feels very, you know, violent medieval warrior kind of thing. And it's definitely suited by the music. It's just the guitar tone makes everything feel so avant-garde and weird because it's just not a combination I would have thought of. But this is a tight, to-the-point album. So far, it's the last these guys have put out. And, um, yeah, there's one Mifras album following this. So, But if you're into Leon Macy's stuff and can't get enough of Mifras, I highly advise going to give this a go because it's a lot of those kind of feels, but on a totally different beast.
So, I've had a bit of a disaster here. Number 10 was going to be Alshafir Leifson, but turns out that album was actually released in 2014, and some of my notes got totally messed up. So, uh, it's a really good album. Go check out their 2014 one. But we'll just skip right ahead because I don't have time to find a new replacement, and this will end up being a top 14 instead of 15. So at number 9 we have yet another avant-garde black metal project. This is Lichgate with their second album, An Antidote for the Glass Pill. Lichgate are a black metal band from the UK who were formed in around 2011. Uh, they're very, very unique in sound and will be that will be another one that's possibly a bit too chaotic for people, much like Dossheim's Guard, but these guys in a much more intense way. The core of their sound seems to be based around a lot of keyboard work. Uh, the main musician behind them, uh, Fortigan, plays guitars, keyboards, organs, and does backing chants on this album. And... All the songs, much like a band like Arcturus, where the keyboards really seem to be the lead instrument, all the songs seem to be built around these incredibly complex uh, keyboard passages, going through like a massive variety of tones and styles. The, the whole feeling of this album, though, is immensely apocalyptic and very ever-changing. It's, it's really chaotic, quite scary, dark music. The lineup is actually rounded out by Greg Chandler on guitar and vocals, who's most famously the vocalist for Esoteric, who's an incredibly gifted vocalist. Like he can do sort of the really low doom stuff, but also has a fantastic high end, and his vocals just have such a natural kind of gravel and distortion to them. They add to the absolute horror on display here. This is one of those bands where the structures of the songs are in possibly hard to follow because they are so constantly shifting um the drums are really up high in the mix and you get these great like blasting sections but they'll often give way to like some really subtle stuff or even drop out completely just to let the guitars have their place the lineup actually has three guitarists in it which is interesting because the mix is very much keyboards drums and vocals heavy with the guitars and bass adding more backing stuff and just adding into that kind of swirling, ever-changing chaos. In many ways, this puts me in the mind of a band like Fantafraxaf, like, sound and tone-wise, except if that sound was done using keyboards more so than guitar. This is a really challenging listen, but it's incredibly rewarding, and it's it's an album I've only recently got into, so I think as I spend more time with it, I'm probably going to come to be even more fond of it. Definitely worth a go, but it does require a lot of attention.
At number eight, we have a band who seem to be gaining a lot of popularity at the moment. This is Horrendous with their third album, Anaretta. So Horrendous are a US-based tech death band who definitely lean more to like the old school of tech death. These guys are... I think basically it's like the first band for a lot of the members. The core of the band is Jamie uh, Knox on drums and his brother Matt Knox on guitar, vocals and bass. And Damien Herring rounds out the lineup also doing guitars, vocals and bass. They play a kind of... A sound I, I find slightly akin to like old Pestilence and Atheist, but with slightly less of the jazz. It's got that kind of um, real thrash influence to it. Whereas I'd say it's definitely strictly a death metal band there's there's a certain kind of almost lightness to the sound that puts me in mind of fresh where a lot of like it doesn't feel very down tuned there's a lot of, like a lot of the vocals aren't the really gutturals they're much higher and clearer and actually i recently listened to an episode of the heavy hole podcast where they interviewed matt knox and he was talking about that that particular influence on the style like he isn't a big death metal guy like the most of the band are more into their thrash and more experimental prog stuff than they are the death metal but this is still an extreme record i think slightly toned down from their previous album but it's still got the kind of brutality you'd expect of something coming out on dark descent records but also the main selling point i think one of the big reasons why these guys are getting as popular as they are is there's a level of melodicism mixed in with that which is just absolutely brilliant like particularly uh the second track ozymandias there is a lead guitar part in it which is just a proper like hard rock air guitar moment but fits so perfectly into this more extreme music they're not the most technical of the tech death camp but there's enough like flashiness on display that this is still really exciting and engaging there's always something interesting happening in any given riff. Something uh, worth bringing up as well, which I think really helps explain Horrendous's rise in popularity, is the album covers. So for the last three albums, they've had Brian Smith doing the artwork, and all three are these absolutely brilliant, really unique pieces. Um, Aronetta's definitely a highlight of, of their catalogue in terms of cover, but I think it just speaks so much to having a good album cover can really capture the imagination of an audience and draw them in to give music like this that may be a little more challenging a go. The band have gone from strength to strength after this as well. With the latest album, they've recruited a kind of like jazz bass player to really fill out the sound with you know more complex additions to what the guitars are doing. But on this album, both uh, Damien and Matt do some really interesting bass work. I think with this album, you'll probably already be aware of it if it's something you're going to be into. But it's certainly a really interesting new release from the world of tech death because it, it, it doesn't share a lot of commonality with a lot of other bands in the US tech death scene.
At number seven, we have a band me and Rob have covered in depth on the podcast before. This is Crip Sermon with their debut album, Out of the Garden. So Crip Sermon are um, a US-based epic doom metal band in that very candlemassy kind of vein with the kind of their unique twist on the style i think is there's just a kind of slight nasty roughness to a lot of what they do while still keeping all that epicness and bombast out of the garden is just an immensely strong debut album but it's seven tracks all have these like huge hooks of choruses excellently constructed like complex um riffs that kind of go on for absolutely ages in that candle mass vein of just the single repetition of a riff being stretched over like four to eight bars in that way that just i know really hooks them in your brain and it's you know got a perfect cover for the album there's lots of like really brilliant um epic sounding lyric writing throughout of it all the performances are exactly what you want from this kind of band and it's just such a strong start point for a band doing this kind of sound like I, I i believe they're kind of often compared with a band like chemists and in many ways like they'd make a really good tour package i believe they have toured together before but whereas chemists kind of go very melodic with a lot of their stuff crypt sermon always keep it that bit more evil and for for me i've always just slightly preferred this band out of the two of them yeah really brilliant stuff band death karma with their debut full length the history of death and burials rituals part one so this band already had one ep out before this uh but this is their first like 
proper full length. Um, the band's mainly led by Infernal Vlad of uh, Cult of Fire, who are another like incredibly interesting black metal band we covered a few episodes back, and then like the lineups rounded out by uh, on this this album drummer Jörg, and on the next album, Thomas Korn, who's also the drummer for Cult of Fire and uh, previously of Lake Hathier Flame. And on this album he adds um, uh, octobands and rototom percussion, which I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it kind of, I can see exactly where it fits with this kind of sound. So this album is a kind of interesting sort of journey through seven tracks, so six tracks all around the seven minute mark, which do these kind of quite long form builds so there's a lot of like really hefty blasting black metal in here but then also a lot of moves to like some incredible melodicism a lot of really beautiful lead guitar work and then some sort of clever stuff like done atmospherically in a few places uh vlad's vocals are just really solid fairly standard black metal fare but Mixed with everything else, the like, the drum, like the absolutely excellent drum performance. As I say, with this album, there's a lot of incredibly heavy kind of blast beat work. the The opening track, Slovakia, Journey of the Soul, pretty much comes in with an intense pummeling for the first three minutes, and then we get a move to something a bit more melodic. There's excellent, really clear bass work throughout the album, as well as lots of kind of more melodic leads, kind of higher up in the mix, while still over these kind of really brutal passages things get a bit experimental towards the middle as well on mexico the third track the the intro is one of those things where it's got a cool kind of like tribal drum groove and then some other stuff going on which i can't quite describe what's happening yeah this the whole kind of sound of it very much fits with this kind of rituals of death idea like each um song title is the name of a country and that country's particular ritual they have around death and burial um we get a really cool moment towards the end of the album in the instrumental india towers of silence where like the guitar leads really take front and center in the mix for a while but then the final track china hanging coffins really brings stuff back to the the more in your face black metal much like Cult of Fire, this is a band I'm just really fond of how they've decided to mix black metal and how they kind of present it in an audio format. Like, it's not your super raw kind of fare. There's a lot of work put into making the drums sound super clear, really letting every instrument have its place in the mix. And the, the whole, much actually, much like Cult of Fire, again, the whole presentation of the band's really cool. They just, like, the album cover's, like, very interesting the band have a cool look to them. They're just one of those complete packages where they're really doing a lot of things right and keeping themselves like quite interesting. I wonder though, much like we call five, just the location of where they're from might be keeping them a bit more underground than they necessarily deserve. But yeah, if you want to hear a band kind of pushing black metal forward, but possibly not in a way quite as uh, bizarre as stuff like Lichgate or Dossheim's Guard, Death Karma is just an excellent modern example of the genre. Stop! 
number five, we have an album we covered in massive depth all the way back on episode two of the podcast. Uh, this is Alkaloid's debut album, The Malkaloff Grimoire. So this is a German-based supergroup um, featuring Hannes Grossman, Christian Munzer of Obscura fame, among many other things. Uh, Danny Tunker, who's like long-term session guitarist a lot of bands, probably most famously aborted. Uh, Morian, the vocalist of this particular project, uh, who is also in Dark Fortress. And uh, Linus Klatzenzer, who is, I think, still a current member of Obscura. So this is very much a supergroup kind of collaborative project. But in the way many of those are, I often find quite disappointing, this one somehow lives up to the sum of its parts for my mind and possibly because of the sheer ambition of this it's incredibly progressive death metal like there is a level of extremity to it in places the the level of technicality that comes in in different bits of it is mind-blowing like everyone's performance on it are absolutely ridiculous and Morian's vocals keep stuff very interesting because he moves through a lot of different styles like he's got a good variety of screams to him but he also does some kind of quite high pitch almost uh rush like clean vocals but then also these other clean vocals where they're like really gravelly strange sounding thing almost kind of throat singing uh, it just keeps stuff really interesting but Structurally as well, this album is so incredibly ambitious from things like the the four-part Odyssey in the middle of the album, the Dyson Sphere, which is essentially when played out in full, like one 20-minute long song with like almost no repeating parts to it that moves between almost power metal kind of cleanness to absolute kind of blast beat, like tech death insanity at others. There's brilliantly guitar work throughout the album, some really melodic stuff on tracks like Organism, and then some uh, more in your face stuff in tracks like Fulu, which has a very kind of morbid angel-y vibe. The album closes out with the incredible Funeral for a Continent, which is like a 12-minute epic that goes through a lot of different movements, but then it ends on this very melodic guitar solo duel for like the last, last kind of three minutes or so of the album. It's just like... Kind of what do you want to hear and it's kind of bad. These people, people like Christian Munzer are famous for being incredible lead guitarists. Both him and Hannes Grossman were on Necrophagist's uh, incredible epitaph. And they're taking some of that influence and bringing it in here. But it's just like Alkaloid have always stood as a very unique band. I think really if you want to hear more detail about this... Go back to episode two, where I think we cover them right at the start of the episode. It's one of the more research things I've ever done. They're like, so I won't try and recreate that now. But yeah, I still think uh, the Malcolm of Grimoire holds up as a really good tech death album, just because of the ambition and the creativity of the songwriting and the fact it like kind of stops itself being self indulgent by virtue of trying to cram more structurally into the songs. Yeah. 
And number four, we have yet another supergroup. This is the second album by uh, the US San Francisco-based band uh, Vol, uh, spelt V-H-O-L. This band features members of Hammers of Misfortune, Yob, and Agalock, among kind of other projects. So the members we have here are um, John Cobbett and uh, Sigrid She of Hammers of Misfortune and many other projects. And... Mike Scheidt, the vocalist and guitarist of Yob, just on vocals with this project. And then the lineup's rounded out by drummer Aesop Decker, who's ex quite a lot of bands like um, Agalock. Oh, apparently Extremity and Carada now. What the hell? Yeah, sorry for getting distracted there. Apparently Extremity and Carada have both broken up. Huh. That's really disappointing. Anyway, uh, back to Vol. Um, so what Vol play is a kind of... Um, melding of a kind of progressive fresh metal sound with some more like cross punk kind of influences and bits of like heavy metal maybe a push power metal but i'd really say heavy metal from the kind of um hammers fortune direction whereas the first album was this very focused um quite nasty kind of album where the whole the whole kind of feel of it was very brutal and bleak uh deep in the sky the follow-up is much more kind of expansive. There's more focus on lead guitar. There's a lot more kind of melodic elements to this album. Kind of more of Mike's clean end of his vocals, whereas the previous album very much focused on his more aggressive attack. John Cobbett's guitar work on this is absolutely incredible in places. The opening track, Deeper Than The Sky, has some utterly incredible guitar work. The whole album comes in on this fade-in of this ridiculous virtuoso shred piece, and then with all these kind of like epic riff, like back and forth verse chorus structure where everything's really catchy, fast and to the point. Aesop Deck is drumming really like leading everything forward it builds this incredible guitar solo where so i don't know how much he's i don't know how he would reproduce this live necessarily but he sort of got all these interlocking lead melodies particularly towards the end of it it does some incredible stuff there but really like the core of this album is aesop's kind of incredibly quick double kick work and sort of tom work over this really hyper fast like really quick down pick slightly detuned riffing the bass playing on this as well is all really fast really fuzzed out like heavy pick attack on it really keeping up well with the guitar work incredibly as well while recording this uh sigrid was incredibly heavily pregnant which is just metal as fuck the core of this album really is the just incredible riff writing throughout. While Desolate Damned is a bit more kind of progressive and expansive, the uh, next track, 3AM, is really where we get to see the very punk influence in it. It's got this really kind of um, aggressive punch to it, and it is quite sort of quick and to the point. But then we get uh, Deeper Than the Sky. The title track is a 12-minute epic that builds through this whole kind of atmospheric interlude section in the middle between the kind of more riffy heavy start and end um and number four we get the really stupid pun titled uh Pano, which is uh, mostly written by sigrid where she's doing a kind of because she's quite a good pianist as well does a thing where it's like these really quick bass riffs um played off against this kind of quite jazzy piano and there's like sort of a back and forth between those while Aesop keeps like a groove going behind it on the drums. It's an interesting idea. It's like 
is certainly something you wouldn't regularly hear on a metal album. And because of the way the bass tone is on this album, it still comes across as really hefty and aggressive. Uh, everything as well is really raw sounding. And it, it works together. Like my, Even Mike Schultz, like vocals are incredibly kind of raw and in your face. Like, Whereas, like, with Yob, he kind of has a lot of space to evolve things. But this is him doing it more as a kind of, like, quick attack. Like, this is much faster than he would sing on many other albums. And if you're really into Yob, this is quite a cool way to see another side of, of his voice. Especially when he's in a position where he can just focus on that and doesn't have to worry about being able to play any of the riffing going on. I've always rated John Cobber as one of the true greats of modern metal guitaring his guy's taken a lot of influence from many different aspects of like 80s metal and just updated it and kept things really interesting and i think this album is a really good showcase of the more technical side of his guitaring and we also see like a great performance from aesop decker here this while maybe not the most complex on every song, he's just so fast and tight sounding throughout all of it. And without that kind of drum performance, I don't know that half these riffs would work quite as well as they do. To kind of close out, the album's got another like really cool cover, much like its predecessor, kind of quite abstract uh, image, but just, just has a really beautiful look for it. So far, this is... Like, the second album is the last thing they've put out, but... They still appear to be active, so I'm hoping there's more coming from this band in the future. talked about a few times on the podcast before this is vegan dud uh, with their debut album De dodden heaven het good these guys are a belgian-based black metal band 
who have shared membership with Oathbreaker and Armand Ra. So, like, the calibre of people involved is pretty bloody high. This album is just a wonderful example of just how to do straight-up black metal properly. It's four tracks, bit under 40-minute runtime, and he's just has this consistent, bleak atmosphere throughout, but with having memorable bits of lead guitar work, an incredible vocal performance. Levy, the vocalist, he's utterly ridiculous screamer. And uh, Will Cooper's The Drummer is incredible. Like, his blast beats are so precise and so intense for the whole length of this. And having seen this band a few times live, all of these elements sound just as terrifying live. Like, the drums are that pristine and perfect and utterly pummeling. Like, everything sounds this good. And it's still that utter bleakness. But yeah, they, they really captured for a debut album. They've perfectly captured the sound I believe they were going for. It's just one of those albums that I can't listen to too often because it just makes me like deeply depressed. But that is exactly what they were trying to do. I'm sure of it. The one other slightly interesting thing with this band is they're a free piece with two guitarists, one also doing vocals and a drummer, and no bass player. And I think that's a big part of where the, the sound they get comes from. They, they do something quite interesting where it has the kind of feeling of a very raw black metal album, but actually the production of it is quite clear and bright. Like, the drums are really well mixed, for example, and the guitars aren't, like, sort of, aren't ridiculously distorted. We're not going into that, like, dark throne kind of territory, but because there's no bass, because, like, the vocals are just so incredibly harsh and the playing is so fast. Everything feels kind of more rough and distorted than it actually is because of the, yeah, just the levels of the album. It's really interesting. It's 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 a very dynamic record. They do lots of good stuff as well with uh, interesting changes in pace. Like the opening track has this long kind of mellow, clean section in the middle, but then builds right back up into some extreme stuff. And then the, the final track of the album has a kind of spoken word outro, which I believe is performed by uh, Oathbreaker's vocalist. So just... But really, the reason I love it is because they kept that atmosphere so perfectly like intact throughout every movement of this album. <laughs>
And number two, we have actually probably the most popular album I've covered in this entire list. This is Cattle Decapitation with their seventh album, The Anthropocene Extinction. So you can more or less copy and paste my review of their previous album from a couple of episodes back over this. Because my feelings are more or less the same. Like, everything on display here is absolutely incredible. Castle Decapitation have got their brand of death grind, um, meets possibly some, like, hardcore influence kind of stuff, down perfectly. They know exactly how to write incredibly catchy, groovy, riff-driven songs, which are still heavy as fuck and go through lots of, kind of, dynamic changes. But it's still packaged up as essentially really accessible three to four minute slabs of extreme metal. Everything about this album is just excellently done. Vocalist Travis Ryan is undeniably one of the most interesting vocalists in death metal. The guy has 50 different voices. He does that, like in recent albums, he started doing that interesting sort of melodic scream like in his higher range it actually has kind of melodies to it but then it can do these ultra guttural almost slam vocals and everything in between uh real standout on the last two albums as well drummer dave mcgraw is just solid as hell like he he can blast so well like his blast beats sound incredible but also his album stops for like has a lot of bits where things really slow down in places and the sort of drum grooves and so on he's come up for any of those bits sound amazing the really cool stuff i like about this album actually and i think this one does it more so than any of castle's other albums i can think of it's lots of riffs that will just break off into a really doomy version of it so you'll get like rather than the fast picking you'll just get like single chords held for a bit and then that'll build back up into a more kind of extreme, fast-paced part. Just almost every riff in this album is really memorable, really well-created. There's like there's no fat on it at all. Josh Elmore, the guitarist, has done like a fantastic job of all the rhythm playing, but also has thrown in a few really kind of sickening, aggressive leads, lots of like super fast tremolo picking and really fast sweeps and so on, making this just adding to the absolute chaos of, like, Travis Ryan's multi-layered, terrifying vocals. Recently as well, I finally got to see these guys live, and they do not disappoint. Like, everything about this, they're recreating the feel of it live, if not perfectly redoing every song. Obviously, there's some, like, overdubs and so on done with the vocals, but I have no issue with that when, like, the vocal performance is this incredibly creative. The other thing that's quite interesting is this album and the previous album have a really sim weirdly similar structure in that they both have this core of like nine tracks then an interlude like a kind of melodic interlude and then a really kind of melodic end song and in both cases the ending song is way more bleak and melancholy than the rest of the album like the album has themes of bleakness but a the rest of it's far more aggressive whereas like the closer of this album Pacific Rim is incredibly sad like uh, and with the very uh apocalyptic uh speech done over the top by uh bethlehem's jürgen bartsch uh, in german that just like just adds something to like the final atmosphere this like really brilliant close off to everything 
as well, I've got to mention the cover is excellent. Like a load of human bodies washed up on the beach full of uh, detritus and rubbish. Like it fits so well with Casual Decapitation's lyrical themes. It just looks great. The lyrics as well on this album are really strong. You totally get, uh, you can get behind Travis, his absolute rage and coming from that kind of um, humanity destroying the earth perspective. It all fits so perfectly. This is just an incredibly well done package. And I'm glad to see that Castle Decapitation, after like years of slogging away at things, have hit a point where they can sort of make these incredible albums and they're getting properly received. Um, you know, and they can tour and sell out shows and so on. Like, despite making music this extreme. <laughs> Number one, we have a band I've been wanting to talk about all year. I got into these guys right back at the start of the year when, when I discovered their um, most recent album of Harm and Salvation. We're talking about their second album still. This is the band Malady from Germany. They're formed in 2009 and Metal Archives lists them as being a progressive slash avant-garde black metal band. But honestly, with a band like this, I think that kind of classification doesn't really do them justice. We, this isn't in the vein of a lot of, say, the avant-garde black metal stuff I usually cover. These are one of these bands that uh, I would put in the nebulous category of 
progressive metal. But, like, progressive in the true sense. This is not your kind of prog power end of things. This is progressive in there are a band where any musical influence seems to be acceptable within their music. They will make great sprawling songs that can go through so many different movements, so many different styles, and yet they still have a sound that's clearly them through many kind of lineup changes, great differences between any given album or EP they've put out. They all they always still sound kind of like Malady. So Essentially, I think the best way I can describe what's about to happen in this album is by giving a brief description of the uh, opening track, uh, Demunitation. Essentially, this song is eight minutes long, kicks off with like kind of this melodic, almost orchestral keyboards, and then comes in with like absolute blasting fury with like this multi layered, utterly disgusting black metal screams. But slowly, this gives way to like cleaner vocals. Then all the music slows down into being like this beautiful, melodic, clean vocal track. But then builds back up into more blast beats, more insanity. And, and keeps switching pace, keeps switching direction. You get cool bits of lead guitar work coming through. Um, and then, at some point, a saxophone suddenly appears in the mix, doing some really... Think of the kind of Rivers of Nile style of use of saxophone, of using it as a very melodic lead instrument. There's moments of that in here. Basically, Malady is a completely bizarre package. But what really sells them to me is they can make all these various elements flow. They make it sound like this is exactly how the songs should be structured. Over its near 72-minute runtime, this album goes through so many movements and styles but all of it flows straight on from the last. It all feels completely intentional and nothing feels remotely forced. The project is um, mainly led by guitarist Bjorn Coppola, who, I mean, he also does all sorts of other instruments with it, but he's mainly the guitarist of the band. Um, they've been going for a while now, so this is their second album. They've got one before it, uh, and then a follow-up album and two EPs as well. And they're about to make proper use of EPs or they do something very out there and different to their studio albums. But yeah, so the lineup on this is a further... Um, <laughs> a further nine... Uh, sorry, eight members and then a couple of guest musicians. So we have three vocalists. We have... Uh, Jeha, uh, who is a kind of well-respected black metal musician um, from Belgium, who's well worth looking up because they're in so many different bands. But like, I definitely want to go and look up more of his stuff because if he's the vocalist, I think he is in this band. His vocals are utterly amazing. Like they're these really disgusting, like throaty, like gurgling sound. Like it's so incredibly harsh. Um, but, like, like, kind of in the girdle from Enslaved vein, but that, like, turned up to 11. But then we have another screen vocalist who I believe is the one doing these kind of more mid-range kind of, like, they're screamed, but there's still, like, an element of melody to it. They're quite understandable in places. And then we have, um, Burned Wenner, who is a completely clean vocalist, a very, like, hard rock kind of vocalist who brings in these massive, 
like vocal hooks every so often and often the different if all three vocal layers might be going over each other at the same time the band also has like three guitarists so the amount of layered guitar melodies going on underneath this is ridiculous the drummer on this can play so incredibly fast when we get to the proper blast beat sections they sound incredible but seems to have no trouble going through these massive slowdowns and speed ups like all this kind of great change throughout there is somewhere buried in the mix some really cool fretless bass playing as well i believe it's fretless there's some really cool bass work that occasionally gets a chance to uh to kind of cut through with this album and like with anything like this where you've got it so incredibly layered where you've got guitars keyboards like multiple vocalists all dealing with that incredibly fast drum sound the mix does get a bit overwhelmed in places and it's hard to tell everything that's going on but it always like that's kind of a minor criticism it's a similar problem say a band like flesh called apocalypse have where there's just so much happening the mix does seem to be slightly straining at the seams melody also have a really cool kind of aesthetic vocally and visually with their arm covers all their arm covers have this same kind of well sort of a variation on the same theme of this image of a man with loads of like sort of wiring coming out of him often in different stages of like sort of agony or pain and i think a lot of their lyrical themes are just based around physical and mental pain and kind of <laughs> ideas spawning off that yeah i think they refer to the the regularly recurring figure in the album covers as the pipe man but like that that's a really cool aesthetic there but another added thing they do lyrically is um they switch between languages a lot so the german bands there's a lot of lyrics in german but there's also a lot of lyrics in french and in english and any given song will just line to line switch between languages and i think it's often just chosen i assume for just the texture of the words sound better in that language. It's it's a really interesting effect. There's great stuff as well where that kind of cleaner, well, not the clean vocalist, the kind of middling vocalist, the uh, the one who still screams, will end whole songs with like these like almost what seem like acted passages, like just ringing out these endless like like bellowing out like long syllables as the music sort of fades away to nothing it's has a really powerful effect the aforementioned opener is a, like a real highlight of the album but we also get some really amazing stuff towards the end like the closing two songs are for me like the real highlights like the track eight is this um 15 minute long epic that goes through so many kind of moods and emotions but then we have the really potent closer which starts off with like gentle keyboards and like just the build in it it sort of builds all to this really brutal blasting middle section while keeping this incredibly kind of creepy melancholy atmosphere going throughout and just showcases all the interesting stuff on display here the saxophone while used kind of sparingly throughout adds a really interesting additional dynamic. The only real criticism I have of this, and it's probably true of most sort of melody stuff, is there is a bit of a reliance on sort of keyboard um, and piano instrumental parts every so often. And some of these can drag on a bit long. They're not terrible by any means, they're still melodic and interesting but just with some of the other tracks being so exciting, things like uh, the the outro to in, ex in existentia, 
it's like three minutes of keyboard and it's kind of when it's already an 18 minute long song it feels a bit over the top but then this is an expansive and over the top album so that's not too big a criticism seriously check this band out because you've never heard anything like it before and i'm so glad something like this exists uh, so far pretty much everything they've put out i've been a massive fan of they their recent ep symptoms part two is utterly brilliant but sounds like a totally different band to this like bjorn the band leader seems to have getting quite a different lineup for each uh each album i think uh Deha, the the black metal vocalist is one of the few members who's on most of them but yeah melody absolutely incredible i can't praise their stuff enough like really obsessed with this okay well that's my my list for 2015 please hit me up with any cool stuff you think i've missed from this year i had like i think now we're getting into that kind of latter half of the decade there's just a sea of utterly mind-blowing albums coming out at any given time so yeah um coming up we're gonna do i'm gonna do one more show essentially because we've already done like our best of 2016 2017 2018 i'm just gonna do one show where i essentially talk about all the albums from those years that i've really got into since doing those shows but um netway obviously wasn't aware of or wasn't into at the time of recording and then uh, very early uh, January, we'll do our usual uh, wrap-up of the year. And after that, we'll do the final top 10 albums of the decade show. So, yeah, there probably won't be a lot of episodes on other themes between now and January. It's just going to, like, I imagine those three will be the next three we do. But after that point, we'll be way more open to covering other stuff. So, obviously, hit me up with ideas, anything you'd like me to talk about, any kind of bands you'd like me to cover, or, you know, even, like, label or artist profiles you'd like me to do. So, yeah, if you want to get in touch, it's uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook, uh, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, and Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com if you want to send an email or anything. Yeah, thanks a lot for listening.